Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me talk about a case study that we uh, looked at when I was um, pursuing my degree in marketing. Um, Welcome back to Earth, the home of Coca-Cola. That's what this massive sign said there on the side of the Coca-Cola headquarters. Now, in uh, 1969, when that sign was massive banner was hung, nobody thought a second thought about that. As the Apollo 11 astronauts returned from being the first men to walk on the moon, that was that was what Coke put up. And everybody acknowledged, yeah, the Earth is the home of Coca-Cola. Because by then, Coke had become something of a cultural icon in the United States. One Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper in, um, in Kansas said that Coke was the sublimated essence of all America stands for, a decent, honestly made product. So they were front and center in American culture for decades. But around the early 1980s, this upstart company named Pepsi Cola start to come in on their on their market share. And market share means everything to a company. So as Pepsi was gaining market share, the management at Coca-Cola said, we need to do something. So their idea was to reformulate their drink to make it sweeter. And that's what they did. They changed their formula. They went through the Peer group surveys, they went through those things, and in 1985, April of 1985, they launched New Coke. The only problem with New Coke was it stunk. Stuff was nasty. Right? Now, their, their groups had told them that it, was, that it tasted okay, but let me tell you something. It was, a, in many ways, a national disaster. Okay? The spring of that year in 1985 in the Astrodome, as the Houston Astros were playing, they played New Coke commercials and they were booed off the screen. (laughs) People bought New Coke in Seattle, Washington, only to pour it down the sewer drain. Old classic Coke, as it would come to be known, was bought and kept and hoarded like a black market product and sold at bootleg prices. (laughs) It was ridiculous. The Coca-Cola company lost millions in research and development. They lost millions initially in market share. But listen, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to Coke. Because they got more free advertising than they could ever have bought. They didn't have the budget for all the advertising that they got. So much so, so much were they strengthened that conspiracy theorists, who, by the way, are not new, conspiracy theorists then said they had planned the whole thing. They did. And the CEO of Coke said, no way. We are not that smart, and we are not that dumb. So what they thought was a good idea was a terrible idea, but in the end, really worked out okay. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel is facing challenges. And they're convinced that they need to make a change. The leaders, listening to the people, say, we need new leadership. We need new politics. We need a new direction. 
The Jesus Storybook Bible, I love that thing, summarizes it this way. God's people had a new land. Now they wanted a new king. But God is your king, Samuel said to them. He is the one who looks after you best. We want a real king, they said. One we can see. God knew that a king might not be kind to his people or look after them as well as he would. But God's people didn't care. They wanted a king and they wanted him now. And so they did. So the next few chapters starting in as I, in, I, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, are going to record the rise and quick destructive fall of Israel's first king, King Saul. His rise will be seen as we look through chapters 8 through 12, and then 13, 14, and 15 are going to see his fall. And so between Samuel's age, Samuel's aging, And between the fact that his sons are following in the path of Eli's sons and are inept and not like their father at all, spiritually completely disqualified from service. So in light of the fact that they really see there is going to be an urgent need for leadership, but couple that, if you will, by the central issue here, which is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's not got that much to do, really, with the outside circumstances. They've grown discontent with God. And it makes it very clear here that the demand that they make here uncovers a sin of rejecting God as their sovereign. And even though they're solemnly warned of the circumstances, they still, like a little five-year-old pitching a tantrum, tantrum, I want my king and I want him now. And what's amazing about it is while the people do not listen to God or his prophet, God and his prophet listen to the people. And he gives them what they want. Now, asking for a king is not the problem. We're going to see in Deuteronomy 17 that God made provision for a king, a gracious provision. The problem is not that they want a king. The problem is why they want a king and how they seek to get him. That's the problem. The problem is that their model is not what God would say and their motivation is not to please God. But here's the deal that I mentioned a minute ago. Even in exacting judgment on them, God in the end is working his purposes. It's an amazing thing to see. And in granting their request, God is not approving their ways and their means and their methods. It's not like he says, okay, well, I'll just give in so you'll shut up. He will overrule their lack of affection for him and show his affection and covenant love to them. God does that. Now, ultimately, this passage that we're about to read is a mirror. It's a mirror of Israel's heart, and it's a mirror of mine and your hearts. It shows us our heart. See, even in light of God's faithfulness, you and I are quick to trust Anything and everything else. Even when we are afraid of, even when we're led by the fear of what other people may think. And led by the fear of not being able to fit in. God doesn't completely cut us off. And even when we are sure we, about what we want, or at least what we think we want. And even when we're resistant to any wisdom that would contradict that, 
God is still faithful. He is still faithful. So look at 1 Samuel 8. In your pew Bible, it's on page 230. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So pause there just long enough to show that there is a there is a genuine real crisis in leadership in Israel at the time. Samuel is getting old. And Samuel makes the decision evidently that hereditary judgeship is what needs to be in place, although there's no pattern for hereditary judgeship throughout the Old Testament. God raised up the judges as he saw fit. But Samuel thinks hereditary judgeship is a good idea. The problem is his sons are not any more qualified to do that than the man in the moon. The judge who is supposed to uphold justice takes bribes. And everybody knew it. So we see that there is a genuine need. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that I have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his own city. 
That is God's word. And Lord, we pray you'll make it just as relevant to us as you did to them. First thing I want us to see in this passage of scripture is that we have a God-given inherent desire to be well-led. God made us that way, to be well-led. And he gives guidance for that. The problem is not that they wanted a king, right? The problem is why they wanted a king and how they wanted that king. But God's intention has been all along to give us the leadership that we need, to provide for us the shepherding that we need. Here is a central truth to the message of the Bible that you must never forget. The sovereign kingship of God over everything, everything. Psalm 10 says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Psalm 95 says, the Lord is a great God and the great king above all gods. Foundational to the biblical message is God's providential sovereign rule and reign over everything and his kind and gracious care for the creation that he has made. He is king. That's foundational to everything. Second to that is that all human governments and authorities have been instituted by God to serve under him, kind of as a vice regent or as a deputy, maybe some term we might understand. But his intention would that they would always be subservient to him. Now, we know that's not the case, but that was his design. That was the case with Adam. Adam was, in essence, by job description, to be the first king, to have dominion, right? And rule over the creation that God had made. The promise that God gave to Abraham, the father of his covenant nation in Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So he made that promise to Abraham. As Jacob lay on his deathbed and gave a blessing to all of his sons, he said to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That same promise is reiterated over in Numbers 24. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So God's design all along was that there would be kings coming forth from his people. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. I want to take just a second to lay out the groundwork for what this monarchy should look like and point out there in Deuteronomy 17 that I believe the elders who came to Jesus had this passage in mind as they made this demand. And by the way, it wasn't a request. It was a demand. And what they did in this essence is what sometimes we do or attempted to do, which is cherry pick a portion out of a Bible verse to use it as a basis for our demand. We have to be careful with that. That's a whole nother sermon. But in Genesis, excuse me, in Deuteronomy 17, follow along with me, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. 
nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, these statutes, and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God gracious, graciously gave clear guidelines for the king that he would have serve over his people. And do you see these characteristics? And I hope as you read these characteristics, you're thinking, Saul, eh, not really, not really, not really, not really, not really. And David, well, yeah, eh, yeah, well, mm, uh, uh, uh. and go king by king, son by son, generation through generation, and see that in the end, they all disappointed. There's only one king who measures up to Deuteronomy chapter 17. His name is Jesus, all right? His name is Jesus. We'll, we'll get to that. The Lord shall choose this king, it says there. This king shall come from among your brothers, and even more specific, from the line of Judah. By the way, that's not where Saul came from. Thirdly, he shall have godly character, and he shall have godly desires. His trust shall be in the Lord, not in chariots, and not in horses, and not in soldiers. His desire shall be to please God within his marriage, not to have multiple wives and multiple children. There is, by the way, a diplomatic reason for that, because the more children you had, the more opportunity you had to make alliance with other kings and other countries. So the temptation would be to trust your army, trust your children to do your politics for you, and trust in your wealth to gain you the standing and give you the things that you need. And God says, that shall not be the case with my men. Those who serve me, character counts. And then it says, they should be godly in their guidance, godly in their understanding. This, this king is to write for himself a copy of God's word, God's law. But listen, the priests are to check it to make sure that it's not edited appropriately for his setting. That's why the priests are to come along behind him and double check it. And he's to read it every day and make it what guides him. He shall be a man of the book. And it says there in verse 19, And he shall read this all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord. And then by fearing God, he will not be lifted up in pride. He will walk in humility before his people. So Saul, he will not do this. He'll be the opposite. David, he'll do much better. But in the end, he'll fail in all of these, in, in, in some ways, in all of these. And the point in this, guys, is that God leaves us always expecting better. Always looking for better. Always looking to Jesus. God has given us an inherent desire to be well-led. And he gives us guidelines for what that should look like. Secondly, we have a sinful aversion to holiness. We have an innate sinful desire to go along and get along. But God has called us to be distinct. 
He's called us to be distinct. And at the core of this request in 1 Samuel chapter 8, at the core of this, while they say we want a king over us, at the core of this is we want a king over us so we can be like everybody else around us. We don't want us to be seen as backwards. We don't want to be seen as not fitting in. We don't want to be seen as still in the Stone Age while we're in the Bronze Age. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a king, and we want to be able to see him. And implied in that, I believe, is controlling. So they did not want to be different. So, D.C. Talk is not the first people who wondered, what will people think when they see that I'm a Jesus freak? If you don't know that, then bless your heart. (laughs) Bless your heart. You need to look it up, okay? It's a great song. Great song. All right? But DC Talk didn't come up with the idea that people are going to think we're Jesus freaks if we're serious about our walk. Israel was scared to death of that. And I believe so are we. You see, a king like all the other nations is not just an expression for Israel. It's their passion. That's, that's what they're pursuing. That's what they want. And their primary motive in that demand flies straight in the face Of what God has said from as early as the book of Leviticus in chapter 19. Speak to the congregation of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy because I am holy. Holiness and distinctiveness about God's people is there for us from the beginning. It's not irrelevant to us under the new covenant in our day and age. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just look at it for a second. I read it earlier so that we could at least have that as a frame of reference. God says, consider what I've done for you. Consider that you are so distinct. None of the other nations have gods who are wise and understanding. None of the other nations have gods who speak to you. You are distinct in your relationship with me. So take care, he says. And this is not just in the Old Testament. Remember our study in Ephesians? God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love, it says, he predestined us for adoption to be distinct as his children. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 1 refers to the church as holy brothers and sisters implied in that. First Peter just repeats what we see in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament. He who called you requires us... He requires us to be holy because he is holy. So Israel preferred to be in step with the culture. And that is a great temptation. It is a great danger because we desire that too. Back in the late 19th century, late 1800s, Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said this. And this is in his commentary on 1 Samuel. I read it this week. One of the first lessons which we have to learn is a wholesome disregard for other people's ways. A wholesome disregard for other people's ways. But we don't want to stand out, even if it is in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. Why should we as a church or we as individuals have a different definition of success than the world around us? Hmm? Why should we be winsome and kind, even to those who oppose us, when our cultures and our leaders show us that aggressiveness and rudeness wins the day? 
Why should we be faithful in marriage and seek to honor our bodies and honor God premaritally when the world says if you're going to keep up, you've got to hook up? So why should we be different? Why should we hold to a biblical understanding of human sexuality and the Imago Dei, the image of God, the dignity of all humanity? When the world sees humanity as a tool to be used, a currency to be expended, or the youngest and the oldest completely ignored, why should we be any different? Why should we have a passion for the truth when everybody else wants their ears tickled? And their immediate felt needs met immediately. Why? Because that is not our God. That is not who He is. And that is not who He has called us to be. We have an aversion to being distinct. But we have a God-given call to be just that. And that aversion then plays itself out as we look back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in the next point. We have a sinful desire. For substitutes. Even though God has over and over and over demonstrated his sufficiency. So I say it again. The problem was not that they wanted a king. The problem was the way they wanted a king and the reason they wanted a king. And so God in verse 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8 says, Obey the voice of the people in that day when they say to you, as they say this to you, because they have not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. Which, by the way, is an important point for us. Just just kind of as an aside, I'll chase this rabbit down a real shallow hole. As we are out there sharing the gospel and trying to live our lives for kingdom purposes, we will not be received well. But listen, they are not rejecting us personally. They're rejecting our message of the gospel and the God who gives it. Just remember that. Our, wep- our war is not against flesh and blood. We're trying to minister and serve flesh and blood. So just that's as deep down that rabbit hole as we'll go, okay? First Samuel chapter 8, if you will flip forward just a little bit to chapter 12, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Samuel gives commentary on First Samuel 8 as he's giving this farewell address. And he basically just does what Stephen does in the book of Acts, which is give a real Cliff Notes version, although Samuel's is very Cliff Notes compared to Stephen's, because Stephen had a lot more history to recount. But Samuel says in chapter 12, starting in verse 8, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And he goes on just to say that even as they were in Egypt, when they cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought them out of Egypt to dwell in that place, they forgot God, he says. (laughs) They forgot the Lord their God. And it says in verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and they said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and, 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 but now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord did that, he says. So he's just recounting for them their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness and ends up in chapter 12 saying, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. That's his, that's God's ultimate motivation. So when we see that we have sinful substitutes, and we, and we desire to do that in light of God's sufficiency. The whole point of the book of Deuteronomy is that you have forgotten or ignored Israel what God has done for you. You've forgotten it all. And that's easy to happen, right? I mean, just think for a minute. It hasn't been that long ago from chapter 7 to chapter 8. When as they prayed and repented and sought the Lord, He defeated the enemy 
on the battlefield and they never raised a hand except in worship and praise. God did it for them. Their evil desire is not just for a king, but looking at the heart issue, they're rejecting God, even though God has just delivered them. Now, think for a second about the context. Think about chapter four. We just got whipped in battle. Why? Because we didn't have it with us. What was it? It was the ark. Maybe if we have the ark, if we have it, we will be successful. Well, no, they weren't. They got beat worse. So that's the context of chapter 4. God will not be manipulated. Now consider chapter 7. And that beautiful picture of how God delivered them as they prayed and repented. And now look at chapter 8. So what you have here is a contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8. What you have between chapter 4 and chapter 8 is a parallel. It's the same thing. In chapter 4... We will manipulate God and have the ark among us. In chapter 8, we will reject God, find a substitute, and have a king over us. So it doesn't matter whether it's an ark among us or a king over us. It's still idolatry. It is still idolatry. And they were guilty on both counts. So it doesn't matter if we're trying to manipulate God or just find a substitute. He'll have none of it. Here's what McLaren said in a second part of that that I just read for you a second ago. He says, we too are ever being tempted to prefer the solid security, as our foolish senses call it, of visible supports, visible delights, instead of the shadowy help of God's unseen arm. Listen to this next question. How many of us feel safer with a good balance at our bank than with God's promises? How many of us live as if we thought that men or women were better recipients of our support and trust than God? How few of us, he says, even professing Christians, really and habitually walk by faith and not by sight? Do we not see ourselves in the mirror of this story, McLaren asked? If not, he says, we should. We have a desire for sinful substitutes, even in light of God's faithfulness. Worse than that, we have a stubborn aversion to biblical wisdom, especially if it confronts us in our foolishness, especially if it goes against what we think is right or what the culture says is right. And then we see God judge and let us have our ways. Notice what comes next in God says, just warn the people, solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You know what's extraordinary about this? Is the fact that it's not extraordinary. It's ordinary. Samuel's not saying, this is what the worst of the worst will do. This is what the governments of men will do. This is what will happen, men and women, he says. When you seek to let someone else rule over you other than God himself, he will take. And how many times do you see he will take? In the ESV, you see it repeated. First, it says in verse 11, the ways of the king who will reign over you will be to take your sons and appoint them to his military service. In verse 13, he will take your daughters and appoint them to his service, whether as perfumers or cooks or bakers. 
Verse 14, he will take your fields and your vineyards, and he will take your orchards, and he will give them to his servants. I mean, the cost of government is real, right? Yeah, sure it is. In verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. Verse 18, he'll take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your human resources and the best of your donkeys and use them. Use them and put them to his work. In verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and look at what it says there. You shall be his slaves. Don't let that slip by. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, God said, that ruler that I put over you shall not lead you back to Egypt so that he can get horses for his army. God says, you shall not return there. Well, here, Israel is returning to Egypt and they don't have to take a step. They don't have to go a mile. And they're back in Egypt. Notice, what was Egypt for them? It was a place of slavery. It was a place of conscription. It was a place where all of their best efforts were used for the good of someone else, whether they wanted to or not. It was a place of suffering. And what did the people of Israel do when they were enslaved in Egypt? Well, it says in chapter 2 of Exodus that they cried out to the Lord. That is the very same word in Exodus that we see here where God says they will cry out because of your king. But in Exodus, they were crying out from slavery that was not their fault. In 1 Samuel, they will cry out from slavery, in quotation marks, because they've chose to go there. They've chosen to be there. They've chosen a king who would lead them there. And not just that part of it I find a parallel, but there's one other parallel that I think is even more striking. Notice what it says. They listen to Samuel's warnings and they say, no, we still want our king. We still want him. The people refused, it says in verse 19. There shall be a king over us. And notice what it says in verse 20. That he will also, it says, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king, here's what we want him to do. He want him to judge us and we want him to go out before us and fight our battles. Well, Saul, by the way, will be their man. He's head and shoulders bigger than everybody else. He's buff. He's good looking. He'll fit that criteria perfectly and fail miserably. But what I want us to see is they want a king who will go out before them. I don't, you don't have to flip back over there, but in Exodus chapter 32, there's an account where the people of Israel want something else to go before them. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods! Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the text goes on later and says, Aaron made a golden calf. When confronted, Aaron will say, they took off their gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. What do you know? But here's the deal. They wanted a king to go before them. 
In Exodus, they wanted a golden calf to go before them. Our kings and our idols are one in the same thing if we're not careful. They are one in the same thing. So these people in 1 Samuel 8 are back in Egypt in more ways than they know. And God's decision and God's judgment is to let them have what they want. To say yes to their sinful, foolish requests or desires or demands. And he gives them what they want as he does us to our own peril. So God does judge us by giving us a yes. He does give his judgment by letting us have the desires of our sinful heart. He does that for judgment. He does that for discipline. He does that for wisdom's sake. And ultimately, he does that for good. I believe our good and his good purposes. Look at the next point. We don't usually have the perspective to see it. And quite often, we don't want to see it. But God's judgment is ultimately an amazing act of mercy. It's amazing. Even as God, in verse 18, says, The Lord will not answer you in that day. No, in that day He does not answer them. But He will. He will respond. And He won't even respond to the cries of the people. He will respond to His own good purposes, His own good intentions, His own providential purposes. Now, one commentator made a point, and and I absolutely agree with it. If the people had requested a king according to Deuteronomy 17, I believe God would have given them David right then and there. They could have avoided Saul. And Saul is a dark mark on the history of this people. So if they had requested according to God's intentions and plans out of Deuteronomy 17, I believe they would have gotten David. But they didn't. And in judgment, they got what they asked for. And in judgment, they got Saul. But God's judgment is ultimately the fountain from which his mercy flows. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy, right? Without his judgment, we don't even know we need mercy. But from that judgment flows God's mercy and his steadfast commitment to his redemptive purposes. This is about his mercy. Susan and I were talking about this. I asked her, let's, let's think about examples of God's judgment that lead to mercy. And the first, and I think one of the greatest examples, is Adam and Eve. What did God do as punishment for their rebellion? He banished them from the garden and put the angel at the gate so they could not come back. And what was the danger of them being in the garden after they were fallen in sin? The tree of life, living eternally under the weight and condemnation of sin with no recourse and no rescue. So God in his judgment exhibited mercy as he shut them off and would not allow them to come in. So they will get Saul as a king and Saul will be judgment upon them. And Saul will be judgment upon them so that through that monarchy, which God sovereignly establishes, they will get the gift of David. And David will ultimately fail them in some ways. And they'll get the gift of Solomon. And Solomon will not be faithful to Deuteronomy 17 and only taking one wife. And Solomon will not be faithful to God's will and ways by being directed solely by God's word. And Solomon will not be good and faithful in regard to not acquiring much wealth. And Solomon will ultimately disappoint, as will his sons who will split the kingdom. 
And then king after king after king will fail. All the while, God's providential good purposes are being accomplished. Until finally, we look forward to a king who will not disappoint us. Who does not take, but gives. Who does not lead us into slavery, but frees us. That's the whole point that should be clear for us to see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me give you four points of application, okay? Four things to just consider. You can jot these down. I'll post them for you. First one, back to my first point. We have an inherent desire to be led well. And God in His grace satisfies that need. But only in Christ. Only in Jesus. You go back and read in the Gospel of John. Pontius Pilate stood before a criminal, at least a criminal in the people's eyes. And his question to that man was, are you king of the Jews? Are you king? And that man's reply was, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. That's King Jesus. And what Jesus is saying there to Pilate and what he's saying to you and me is, don't try to box me up. Don't try to politicize me. Don't try to paint me a certain color. I'm not a king like the kings of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. You see, the Israelites wanted a king to guarantee their prosperity and security. What did they get? A king who took those very things from them. (laughs) They wanted a king who would, in some way, they could control. And what happened? He would control them. You see, this is, a, this is just an Old Testament version of a New Testament principle. That when we have other kings and other idols before us and not God, they don't serve us, they enslave us. They don't give, they take. Jesus didn't come to take, he came to give. Now you may be saying, no Gerald, I'm independent bro. I don't have a king. No one reigns over me. Please, the Bible would say you're a fool if you believe that. Don't be so foolish. Every life has a king. The king in your life is whatever you must have in order to be happy and be fulfilled and be content. That is your king. So as McLaren said, if your bank is empty and then you are empty, you have lost your king. If your husband or your wife, if you cannot live without them, and would be destitute and broken apart from them, marriage is a gift. And that person is a gift. That person can never be your savior or your king. Don't expect that. If you cannot be satisfied without being accepted and going along, it will be a short time before you are destitute and alone. And I implore you then, turn to King Jesus. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Paul said this in Romans 6. In the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. He says in Galatians, Do you not know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to that one you obey? Bob Dylan was right. You're going to have to serve somebody. Let it be Jesus. 
bow the knee to King Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust in him today. We have an inherent desire to be led well. Only Jesus can do that. Number two, if we look at Deuteronomy 17 and line it up with what we see in the rest of 1 Samuel, we will see that character matters. Character does matter. It matters in the church, and I personally believe it matters outside in the culture as well. We are called to make decisions, to see the world through the lens, through the paradigm of God's word and God's wisdom. And listen, church, we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow the idol of pragmatism and we don't allow the idol of technique to take the place of biblical wisdom and solid character. That's all I'll say. Character matters. Thirdly, Christian, we are called to, saved to, been redeemed to be distinct, to be different, to be holy. That is who we are. So let's be careful not to lose our identity. And here's the deal. If we are not growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we are being shaped and fashioned by the culture around us. One of those two things is going on in the life of a believer. It can't be in the middle. You're either growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus and becoming more like Him, or allowing the culture and the world to shape and direct you and becoming more like it. And 1 Samuel 8 shows us the consequences. And those consequences are, are weighty. They're heavy. So that temptation to conform and be like the world around us, listen, praise God that our King Jesus, there in the wilderness, when confronted by Satan, over this very issue, will you be that kind of a leader that the world looks to? Will you be that kind of a leader that feeds people and meets their immediate needs? And what did Jesus do? On every account, he went back to Deuteronomy and showed himself to be our faithful king. Our faithful king. Christian, we're called to be distinct. Walk with Jesus. And finally, bad decisions, <laughs> bad decisions have bad consequences. All right? We cannot change the biblical truth that God is not mocked, and whatever one sows, that one he also reaps. Job said it, I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble weep the same, reap the same. Let me try that again. I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. But then Job adds this, but God's purposes still stand. God's purposes still stand. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what weight or fruit you are living with as a result of bad decisions, sinful decisions, or where you may be as a result of the bad, sinful decisions of someone else. And coming to faith in Christ will not change all of those consequences. But it does change the way we work through them and what happens on the backside. It does change that. Listen again to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just remember this picture of God's mercy in the midst of judgment. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and, led, and let you, listen, he let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, 
nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell. Know then that the Lord your God is walking in his ways. Excuse me. So keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Because the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. God is bringing us into a good land. Even as we walk through the valley of judgment and discipline. Praise God for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for the bad examples that we see in your word. For the dark chapters that many would have hidden and just pushed under the rug. But God, you reveal them so that we can see our own hearts even as we look at Israel. We thank you for godly leadership and guidelines that you give us, God. We thank you for the call to holiness and character. And we thank you that we don't have to drum up that holiness in and of ourselves. It's given to us in Christ as we walk in obedience with you. Lord, thank you for that. Father, thank you for your mercy on us in Christ. God, thank you for the punishment and the judgment that was poured out on the cross on Jesus and the life and mercy and grace that comes as a result of that. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who's never trusted in Jesus, Father, you do that regeneration in their heart right now. And God, we who are your people would walk with you, holy, distinct, joyful for who we are in Christ and what you are doing for us. And I pray that in his name. Amen. I'll be down front to pray with you, receive you, serve you any way that I can as we uh, close in worship.